Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel 21, and you'll find this on page 273. And this evening, uh, we're looking at verses 1 through 14. And we'll just read verses 1 through 14 as a result. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel Let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, uh, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Methalite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines hanged them on the day the Philistines had killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. 
probably at some point you have been engaged in a conversation uh, with someone and they are telling a story, but as you listen uh, to their rendition of the story, you think to yourself, that's not quite right. And as they go on to tell the story, you feel the need to interject. Uh, you feel the need to set the record straight because you don't want the other person to have a misunderstanding of the events that took place or to cast them in a certain light. And so you will want to set the record straight to explain why the things that happened happened or to explain how things actually went down. This evening, as we're turning back to the book of Samuel, we have been looking at the life of David. And there's a reason to it. David was one of Israel's kings. But more than that, he was Israel's greatest king in the Old Covenant. And he was a foreshadow of what the promised king, the son of David, would be. And as we've been looking at the life of David, we have been seeing how it prepares us for understanding the kingship of Christ why it is that we need a king, and what kind of king we need. But as we come to the end of Samuel, as we've been tracing through the life of David, there have been certain tidbits dropped along the way about David, how certain people looked at David. And it's important that we set the record straight. And one of the things that is happening in this chapter, it seems, is setting the record straight about some of the things that David did. Some of the very controversial decisions that David himself made. One of them was the execution of Saul's descendants. That it would be very easy to look at what Saul, what David did here and to think about it simply as David securing his own power. That David is simply trying to remove the former dynasty. That David is simply acting out in vengeance uh, of a personal nature against all that Saul did to him. But the book of Samuel wants to help put things in perspective and to help us understand why David did what he did. And so we want to turn to this very uh, dark time in Israel's uh, history when David uh, makes a decision uh, to have Saul's descendants put to death. But as we're doing that, we're coming to the end, the closing chapters of the book of Samuel. And as we come to these closing chapters, it might seem almost like an appendix uh, uh, just a, a series of short uh, sections uh, put together at the end, almost uh, as if it's for further information. If you want to learn about the behind the scenes or some of the other things that happen. But there's a, a structure, there's a purpose to these chapters. These final chapters of the book of Samuel really stand back and they're giving us something of an assessment of the Davidic kingdom. We have followed the development, the rise of the Davidic kingdom. We've seen something of the weaknesses of the Davidic kingdom. But now as we come to the end, we want to think about how do we, how do we assess and evaluate David's kingdom. And in these last chapters, they're really structured around these themes. In two of these chapters, you'll see that they're both dealing with the problems that emerged in David's kingdom. Namely, the wrath of God coming upon the land. You see it here in this chapter, but you'll see it again when we come to David's census. There are also two other sections that deal with lists. Uh, and those lists are giving us something of the might and the glory of David's kingdom. And then right in the center of this 
theological appraisal is the hope of David's kingdom. So we move from thinking about the problems with David's kingdom to thinking about the strength of David's kingdom to thinking about the importance or the hope embedded in David's kingdom. And so this evening we want to begin by looking at one of those bookends, a time of God's wrath coming on the land of Israel and how David decided to respond in that situation. And we want to see uh, this evening in a very uh, difficult way, we want to look at this passage, but we want to think about it in terms of covenant. We have been singing uh, this evening many psalms that deal with covenant. And even through this book, we have been looking at how this concept keeps coming up. The covenant of David, uh, that God made with David. The covenants that David makes with others. The covenant that the tribe of Judah makes with David. Uh, It is a binding agreement. And this evening, as we're looking at this nature of a covenant as a binding agreement, we want to think about What happens when that agreement is breached? We want to think about how something that is meant to be held together, what happens when it's dishonored or when it's broken? And we want to think about uh, that in this chapter. We want to uh, then look uh, together uh, at what uh, happens um, during David's reign with respect to this covenant. It tells us in verse 1 that there was a famine in the days of David for three years. We have no idea when this happened. It's not necessarily at the end of David's life. It could have been at any point in David's reign. But the point is is that this famine lasts for an extended period of time. The law of God did warn that God would bring his judgment on the land, that he would bring a curse on the land and cause the land to be accursed. Uh, if the people proved to be unfaithful to the Lord. And so David had reason to believe that uh, God's anger and judgment was upon the land with this extended famine. But he had no way to know what was the cause of God's anger. What was the cause of God's judgment coming in this way? And so we're told that David sought the Lord. He sought to understand what was happening and why it was taking place. And the Lord does not leave him in the dark, which, which is a, an aspect of God's grace right there. Because God does not simply leave him to his own guesses. He doesn't leave David to simply try and, uh, uh, try and make sense of everything by himself. Uh, he's not left to try and uh, figure out uh, what could be the possible problem. But the Lord reveals to him what the problem is. And it tells us there in verse 1 that the Lord makes it known there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. That language of blood guilt refers to killing uh, an innocent person. It is the unlawful killing of another person that is being referred to here. It's talking about murder. A murder that is uh, accountable for. And so here, Saul and his house are guilty uh, of murdering innocent uh, people, the Gibeonites. Who are these Gibeonites? It tells us in verse 2 that the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but they were uh, the uh, the people whom the people of Israel had sworn to spare. 
We read of them there in Joshua chapter 9. You remember that uh, when there were other uh, uh, groups that were fighting against Israel, the Gibeonites were more cunning. They realized they weren't going to defeat Israel. And instead, they were deceptive. They decided to pretend that they were coming from a great distance. And they came to Joshua and they portrayed themselves as if they had traveled a great distance. And they asked to make a covenant with Joshua. They wanted to secure peace with the people of Israel. And it tells us that when they came, that Joshua and the elders did not consult with the Lord, but rather they made peace with them. They entered into a covenant with them. And so ultimately, the Gibeonites were able uh, to secure their own well-being. Eventually, the Israelites discovered that they had been deceived. But when they found out, they still believed they were bound to their vow. Just as it says in Psalm 15, that the righteous person is the one who swears to his own hurt. That they, they hold to their promise even when it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back on them. It's going to be hard for them. There's going to be a consequence to it. The righteous person upholds their word. And so here the Israelites, when they realize they've been deceived, they still said the vow is still binding. We promised them that they would be spared. And so we're told that Joshua and the elders granted them that protection. You will now live under the protection of Israel. You will have the peace of the people of Israel. You will be servants. But you have our word before God that you will have peace. And so a covenant was established with them. It tells us in Joshua 9 that they swore by the Lord, the God of Israel. So their word was calling on God as a witness. But here, when this famine comes on the land, we're told that the reason is because of Saul's uh, guilt, because he put the Gibeonites to death. What has Saul done? Saul has murdered innocent people, people who were promised peace and protection have now been killed by the king of Israel. They have been attacked unlawfully. But more than that, what Saul has done as the king of Israel is he has smeared the character of God because that covenant was made before God as witness and appealed to the God of Israel. So as they come and they make this vow, it is calling on the reputation of God himself. Dale Davis says this, swearing an oath in Yahweh's name or in the Lord's name and violating it discredits the Lord's reputation. It says that the Lord cannot be depended upon and that his name guarantees nothing. It is taking his name in vain. It is making his name mud. That's what Saul did. Because if you're a Gibeonite, why would you ever take anything serious about the claims of the God of Israel when those who claim to follow him are willing to break faith? They're willing to break their word even after they call on God as their witness. How trustworthy is the God of Israel when the followers of the God of Israel aren't? And so Saul's crime here is multifaceted. He's guilty of murder. But he is also guilty of smearing and uh, uh, smearing God's name 
and taking the name of the Lord in vain. So there's a famine in the land. The reason for the famine is made clear. It is because of Saul's guilt. The guilt of Saul and of uh, on his house. And the, the judgment of God has come uh, on account of violating the covenant. The law stipulated that if someone was guilty of unlawfully killing another person, then the land would be polluted. And that the murderer was to be put to death. In Numbers, it says, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So the law said, if someone is guilty of murdering an innocent person, that person is to be put to death. Otherwise, the guilt transfers to the land or to the people as a whole. The problem was, is that Saul was already dead. And so now you have a situation in which the Gibeonites have been the recipients of injustice. And David now is left with a situation in which God's anger has come against the land. The land has been polluted. And David is trying to figure out what he should do to make things right. You'll notice here that there's nothing explicitly said from the Lord as to what is to be done. Only the problem that is raised. But David comes to the Gibeonites asking them how it is that he can make things right. Uh, he asks them how he can make atonement uh, for uh, the sins of Saul. Verse 3, how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? You see that? Instead of the people of God becoming a barrier to faith, David is saying, how can we make things right so that you will praise the people of God and their God as well? And so he is wanting to cover the offenses. He's trying to, to, to remove the wrongdoing or to make things right. And so he asks them how he can do that. And the Gibeonites explain that this is not about getting money. Uh, and it's not uh, as though they're in a position to claim anyone's life themselves. But they ask the king to bring judgment against Saul's house. To provide seven sons uh, that they will execute themselves or that they will be publicly executed. This would show the wrongness of Saul's doings and it would grant protection to the Gibeonites, highlighting that the covenant is to be honored. That covenant of protection that was given to them is still binding. Even though Joshua's dead, it is still to be uh, upheld. And we are told that as they make this request, uh, that the king granted their request. It says, the king says, I will give them. Now, you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, doesn't this seem to go against the principle of scripture that a father will not be put to death on account of the sins of his children and that a child will not be put to death on account of the sins of his father? And that may be uh, uh, how you look at it. But as one person highlights, uh, Saul did not trample on the Gibeonite covenant merely as an individual. He's the king of Israel. In his office as king, his deeds have an official character. As the king, the people were represented in him. 
Hence, his offense had a represent, uh, representative uh, nature to them or character to them, and to that extent involved Israel in the guilt. The offense itself was national as opposed to individual, for the covenant with Gibeon in Joshua 9 was sworn by Israel's leaders on behalf of the whole. Should the covenant be broken, all Israel would be liable for it, even if only one man was the primary instigator. What's he saying? He's saying that a people have a representative. And when that representative acts, the whole are liable for it. When one person makes a decision as the head of state, the nation is wrapped up in the decision of their representative, of their leader. And what Saul was doing is he was bringing guilt, not just on Saul, but on the people as a whole. The people as a whole are experiencing famine. The people as a whole are under God's curse. The people as a whole are exposed to the judgment of God. And David is wanting to make things right, not just for Saul, but he's trying to make things right for the nation as a whole. And so as we think about this, we have to realize that Saul is acting as a king. And his actions have consequences not only for him, but for all those that he represents. When people made covenants in the ancient world, you remember, for instance, when Abraham, uh, when a covenant was made by God with Abraham, that the animal pieces were parted in half. And then those who bear obligations in that covenant would pass through those pieces. As much to communicate May this be my fate if I do not uphold my end of the obligations of this covenant. May this be what happens to me if I'm unfaithful. And so here are the Gibeonites after having made a covenant with Joshua saying this is what was promised to us. They're simply asking for the consequences of that covenant to be enacted as they come asking for judgment. And so they, uh, they come uh, highlighting the binding nature of those covenants. Uh, so it tells us that David uh, grants their request. And we are told that he grants uh, who it is that he grants. He grants two of the sons of Rizpah, uh, Saul's concubine, and five of Saul's grandsons uh, from his older daughter, uh, Mirab. Uh, and it tells us, furthermore, about the outworking of this execution. It says that he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And seven of them perished together, and they were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. We're told how it happens. They're, they die together. We're told where it happens, on the mountain. We're told about the judicial matter of it all. It happens before the Lord. We're told when it happens, at the beginning of when barley harvest should be. We're told many things about how this happens. We're not passing over this execution quickly. The book of Samuel wants us to understand why David made this decision. It wasn't out of a personal vendetta, but David was trying to make atonement for the wrongs of the past. And so he grants this this uh, request of the Gibeonites. But as he's doing this, uh, he is seeking uh, to lift the curse himself. 
But one thing that stands out is, is that it doesn't stop there. We might expect it to say that David granted their request and they died. But it enters into the experience of this horror, really, of what is taking place by focusing in on the experience of the mother of two of those sons, of Rizpah, the concubine of Saul, who loses her sons. She cannot protect them from the judgment that is coming. And yet she is faced with the outworking of the consequences of the violation of that covenant. And it tells us that as a result that Rizpah took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, uh, either uh, for shade uh, or um, uh, for protection. But she uh, was there where her sons were exposed to the elements. They were hanged publicly, showing the public nature of this judgment that has come against the descendants or the house of Saul. And that she was there trying to protect the corpses, the bodies of her sons from the elements, from the wild beasts, and also from the birds of the air. And she then spends time there protecting her sons as best as she can. And it tells us that she's there from the barley harvest until the rains. And if the rains are referring to the autumn harvest or to the autumn rains, we're talking months that she is there protecting the bodies of her sons. Why is Samuel doing this? It's drawing attention to something of the tragedy of breaking covenant. That what Saul did had a terrible consequence. Many Gibeonites died. The land of Israel went through three years of famine. People die in famines. This mother is faced with the horror of losing her sons and of trying to protect their corpses for months. And all of this is simply drawing attention to the tragedy of sin and a breaking covenant. Saul's sin has provoked God's anger and God's judgment. And all of this draws attention to the importance of a covenant. A covenant is binding. For blessing or for cursing, it is binding. And when we read in scripture, the scriptures tell us that our first parents entered into a covenant with God. That God established a relationship with them. He gave them a promise. He gave them terms about how this relationship would work. But when our first parents sinned, it's not just they made a mistake or we should learn from their mistakes. But when they <coughs> sinned, they brought the curse of the covenant upon their posterity. That what they did have consequences for all people. And so what is it that we should learn from this whole scenario? It's the tragedy of covenant breaking. As David desired to make atonement, to lift the cursed from Israel, David ultimately made the choice to be willing to sacrifice seven descendants of Saul in order to do this. But when the promised king came into this world with the purpose of making atonement, for sins and lifting the curse. He did it by sacrificing not others, 
but himself. That the true king of Israel, the true king of this world, was willing to lay down his own life in order to lift that curse. That's what it says in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so Jesus himself uh, experiences the curse in order to lift that curse from uh, his people, in order to make atonement for them and to restore them in God's sight. Do you believe that Christ came into this world to take away the wrath of God? Do you believe that Christ did that in your place? That what Jesus is doing is accomplishing atonement so that judgment can be lifted. So what are we to take away from this? First, the tragedy of breaking covenant and how it brings the curses of the covenant. David ultimately was willing to sacrifice these descendants of Saul so that the nation would be able to carry on and survive, hoping that the famine would lift and they would be able to be spared of God's judgment. But Christ was willing to take that curse on himself in order that the sins that would condemn us would no longer have that power. But then secondly, we can learn something else uh, from this whole event. We see not only the ugliness of when a covenant is breached, but we see something of the beauty of when a covenant is maintained. In the middle of this whole tragedy is Mephibosheth. There in verse 7, it says, The king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. This theological appraisal of David's kingdom is set in contrast with Saul. Saul was a man who broke covenant. He did not honor the promises and the vows that were made before God. But what stands apart between David and Saul is is that David was a man who remembered his promise. He had vowed that he would protect the descendants of Jonathan. And even when judgment was coming on Saul's house, David found a way to protect Mephibosheth. He found a way to protect the one that he had promised he would. And so he did. Mephibosheth, in all likelihood, would have met with the exact same fate as these other descendants of Saul, except for the king. The king's intervention protected him, and he was spared because of the faithfulness of the king to his promise. What this is teaching us is that we need the kind of king who is faithful to his covenant promise. We need the kind of king who is going to uphold his vows in order that we would have protection. So that like Mephibosheth, we would be spared of the judgment of God. And that's ultimately what David does here. David's commitment uh, to his covenant points ahead to the promised king, the Lord Jesus, who would lose none of those who have been given to him. So we live in this world And we're reminded of our sins on a day-to-day basis. We fall short. 
We, we stumble in the same areas. We, we see our shortcomings. We feel perhaps like hypocrites at times. What confidence can we have when we see sin so often manifest itself in our life? Ultimately, it's by looking back to the covenant that has been made. That Christ is a redeemer of his people. That God will show mercy on those who call on his name. That at the name of Jesus, everyone who believes in him will in no wise be cast out. And so if I'm trusting in Christ, I can be certain of God's protection from the judgment to come. Because while I broke in covenant myself, Christ is faithful on his end. That Christ will uphold his promise and he will work uh, the salvation of his people. Our king finds a way to spare those who look to him in faith. We have all sinned and have warranted God's judgment, but we don't have to live left in the dark about how to find atonement. Our atoning sacrifice comes in the Lord Jesus. He died on the cross in order to restore us to God and to take the curse himself. And in Christ, we can know God's protection. Are you trusting in this king? Or are you someone living as though there is no judgment uh, to come? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about uh, the reign of David and uh, the way that uh, um, judgment came upon the land of Israel, Lord, we pray that we would realize uh, that uh, there is a judgment that is to come. But we pray, Lord, that we would not be crushed and hopeless, but that we would be looking to your promises, knowing that you are a God who is faithful. We thank you for Christ, who came into this world to bear the sins of many, and who was cursed on the tree. For the scriptures say, cursed is the one who is hung, hanged on a tree. And so we pray, Lord, that we would see how scripture points us and helps us to interpret the experience of Jesus. May we be people who find our confidence in him. In Christ's name we pray.